The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 2. Tomorrow night, we once a quarter, we set aside time for prayer. Uh, as a church body and the elders come, and it's an opportunity to pray with them, have them pray with you, and it's also a time to pray for things in general. We will... We take 6.30, 7.30, child care is available, but you do have to call the office on RSVP for that. Doing a series called Journeys, and this morning we'll look at a message I've entitled Traditions. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and they said to him, Why do John's disciples and the, Pharisee, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to him, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is lost in the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Then drop down to verse 27. And he was saying to them, the Sabbath, was not, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Then down to chapter 3, verse 6. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him so as to how they might kill him. Father, as we look at the word, we desire to be those who look into it and then apply it to our hearts. So, Spirit of God, we ask you to take great liberty and freedom in our hearts to convict us and to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Traditions. The Jews had a lot of traditions during the time of Christ, and they had equated these traditions to the law. They basically added numerous things to the actual Mosaic law, and they equated those traditions with the law. They said, if you followed the, not just the law, but these traditions, then you were indeed a righteous man. Traditions. How many of you have seen the movie Fiddle on the Roof or the play Fiddle on the Roof? Great play, great movie. In it. Yeah, it's a great play. There's actually really good theology in the beginning of that movie to describe what was happening in the time of Christ. Traditions elevated to tell you what to do, how to do it, to make everything in life black and white, to make everything so that you know exactly what to do so you can be a rule keeper rather than a God seeker. Watch this clip and then we'll comment on it afterwards. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! of our traditions we've kept our balance for many many years here in Anatevka we have traditions for everything how to sleep how to eat how to work how to wear clothes for instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. 
This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Traditions. Hey, we don't know where it came from, but we know we need to keep it. It keeps our life in balance. See, we can legislate uh, what to do every time, what to wear, how to work, and how to do everything, because it keeps our life in balance, and it brings us favor to God. That's what happened. I, I, th- that was the theology of the day of Christ. It's a good description of that theology. Traditions were are man's ways of trying to earn God's favor. It's man's attempt to legislate right and wrong, to make all things black and white, to become rule keepers rather than God seekers. And so we tend by nature to be law keepers. We tend by nature to be those who become legislative. We become those who want to legislate righteousness. We become those who want everything to be black and white, want everything to be right or wrong. And rather than allowing the Spirit of God and depending on the Spirit of God, we become parched. Because if you keep a religious system, you're going to struggle. One author says this, Satan replaces a love affair with a religious system of do's and don'ts that parts our hearts. Our experience deteriorates from the passion of a grand love affair to an endless series of chores and demands, a busyness to that, a busyness that separates us from God, each other, and from our own thirstiness. You see, if we can keep the rules, then we're all okay. If we can do what's right versus what's wrong, if everything is black and white, we don't have to think or depend upon the Holy Spirit. All we have to do is have a list, and we're okay. Mike Iaconelli says this, religious people love to hide behind their religion. They love the rules of religion more than they love Jesus. Rules, regulations, rule keepers rather than God seekers, legislating right and wrong, making all things black and white. Church I grew up in, in the deep south in New Orleans, uh, in the 1960s, we had rules. They were mostly unwritten, but we certainly understood them. For instance, in the Deep South in the 1960s, we knew those people were not allowed to be in our worship service. And that was a tragedy. That was, I played ball with those people and they were my friends. But yet there was this unwritten rule, if you were a different color, different race, then you were not allowed to be there. We had another unwritten rule. Uh, We don't drink in this church, at least not in front of one another. I mean, that was the unwritten rule. If if, If we weren't around one another, that was certainly fine. Uh, Another rule was rock and roll music is not allowed in the church. This is the 1960s. We wanted to have a youth event, and we were told no guitars, no drums in the church. Kettle drums were okay, but not rock and roll drums. Go figure. And so we had these rules. Traditions trump truth. Traditions trump need. Traditions trump love, care, and compassion. That's what happened in the time of Christ. Traditions trumped everything. Traditions would trump the truth, traditions trump need, traditions trump love, care, and compassion. And traditions are not bad. At TBC, we have traditions. And traditions, I love traditions. Traditions are not bad. I mean, we traditionally do a Christmas Eve service. Is it right or wrong to do a Christmas Eve service? Doesn't matter. It's up to the church. We do baptism at the creek. Is that right or wrong? Well, it's the way we do it. It's our tradition. It's a powerful time. A testimony, we love doing it that way. There's no baptismal back here anywhere. But is it right or wrong? It's neither. It's our tradition. We don't pass an offering plate. Is that right or is it wrong? It's our tradition. We do it that way. It's not right or wrong, and don't make it a matter of pride. 
We, we don't do business meetings. Is that right or wrong? I just say that's plain smart. That's what that is. You can come to TBC in jeans or you can come in suits and it doesn't matter because we're not concerned what's on the outside. We're concerned what's on the inside. We will teach modesty because that's part of the scriptures and that's important. But you can come in jeans, you can come in suits, it doesn't matter. I got an email recently and said, I saw people go to your church and I saw a man wearing shorts on a Sunday. Wow. And then that followed up and said, uh, not only that, I bet they'll come with coolers next. And I thought, if they bring sandwiches, I'm okay with that, actually. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, what is right and what is wrong? Now, we're not talking about things that are, are in the Scripture spelled out because I love traditions. But when we turn them into law, we make it a matter of right versus wrong, and we elevate traditions above truth, need, love, care, compassion. We're Pharisees. We become the Pharisees. We're just like them. And Jesus is speaking against that, and he does some things so that he can be involved in correcting that. You see, the controversy swirls around Jesus because he's done the miraculous, but he's done it on the wrong person. He actually touched a leper and healed a leper, and now he's going to do it on the wrong day. He's going to do it on the Sabbath. And so he did the right thing to the wrong person on the wrong day. And so the result of all that is there's this controversy that sweeps around Jesus and especially the Pharisees, among others, but especially the Pharisees. And the result of that is chapter 3, verse 6 of Mark. It says they conspired together, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they counseled together how they might kill Jesus, how they might destroy him. And so to them, this was way more than just a small conflict. This is we want to kill this man because he's destroying what we deem is right. And so the whole passage begins with some questions and answers with Jesus. I mean, the opposition's intensifying. As Mark puts together the gospel, he shows the intensification of the opposition to Jesus. And it begins with this question and answer session. The question and answer session begins with a question about fasting. In verse 18, it says, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They came. The they refers to both John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees. They both have the same question. You go to the parallel passage in Mark, and John the Baptist's disciple asking a question, and here they're coming together. And it says, they came together, and they had a question about fasting. And they said, here's our question. Why do we fast and you don't? I mean, why do you fast and we don't? Basically, the Pharisees and Sadducees are confused. They're saying, I mean, John the Baptist's disciples and Pharisees are confused. We're making sacrifices, you're not. John's in prison, we're mourning, and you're not. We're serious about our faith enough to fast, and you're not. That's the pointing finger of accusation against Jesus by those guys. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, fasting's a good thing. Jesus is not dismissing fasting. In the Old Testament, you know how many days of fasting were required in a year under the law? And if you go to the law and look at it, Genesis through Deuteronomy, especially where the law is giving, uh, you find that there's one day of fasting mandated by the Scriptures, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's it. Now, by the time of Jesus, the entire nation of Israel fasted on three days. They fasted on Yom Kippur. They fasted on the Feast of Purim and one other date that, when, the, when, the, when there was a destruction in Jerusalem. I forget the actual date, but there were three days in which fasting had been mandated. One by the Old Testament, two by the Jewish calendar. Well, you come to the time of Christ, and guess what happens? The Pharisees, who had risen up sometime in the New Testament period between the Old and New Testament, they, they now wanted to show that they were righteous. So they wanted to legislate. They wanted to prove that they were righteous. 
So they didn't fast one day a week as mandated in the law, three days a week, uh, one day a year like mandated in the law, or three times a year like the nation of Israel is doing. You know how often the Pharisees fasted? Every Monday and every Thursday of every week the Pharisees fasted. Why'd they do it? Jesus is pretty clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, he begins and he says, Don't be like the hypocrites who when they pray, they stand in the synagogue in the street corners so they can be seen their awards in full. And when you give, don't be like the hypocrites. What they do is they make sure everybody sees them. Instead, you don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. What they do is they put on a gloomy face so everybody knows this is the day of fasting. They are more righteous. They are more holy. They are more godly than everybody else because they're fasting on that day. And so they had raised, I mean, they had raised the level of fasting like the church I grew up in had raised the level of potlucks. I mean, you do it all the time. And so what Jesus is saying, he turns to them and uses the imagery of the wedding feast. And he says, the bridegroom and his attendants do not fast. He said, if you go to a wedding, you don't find the wedding party fasting. And then he makes a statement. As long as you have the bridegroom with you, they cannot fast. Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. It's not a time of mourning. It's a time of celebration. It's not a time of sadness. It's a time of joyfulness because the bridegroom is with you. And he uses the wedding imagery to say, I want you to know. I want you to know this is a time of celebration because I, the bridegroom, am with you. You see, what began as a good thing, which was fasting, devotion to God, longing for God as one longs for food. That's what fasting is. When you feel hunger, you pray and you turn to God and you glorify him. And maybe there's something specific you're fasting for. I had a good friend that I mentored when he was here doing his residency. And he fasted every Wednesday. And when he had hunger pains, he prayed for his family. That's why he fasted. Prayed for his wife and his kids. And so your fasting is a good thing. But Jesus says, now is not the time to fast. It's the time to celebrate. He says, the bridegroom is here. Now, I love weddings. It's a good thing because I do them all the time. I love, it's a great combination. You've got family, you've got friends, you've got food, and you've got wine. That's a good day. I mean, that's a good day. Jesus' first miracle is where? It's a wedding feast at Cana. He celebrated weddings. He celebrated at those things. At that wedding, a social faux pas occurred, and they ran out of wine. So Jesus turns water into wine. The scriptures tell us in John, it's the first sign that Jesus did, first miracle he performed. By the way, you never know what kids hear when they get taught. First grader went home from Sunday school, and his folks asked him in the car what he had studied in Sunday school. He said, we studied about Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding. And the parents say, what would you learn from it, son? He said, I learned if you got a wedding, make sure Jesus is there. Never know what kids hear. But in the Jewish celebration, it wasn't a one-day celebration. I mean, everybody celebrates at a wedding, except one person. Who is that? The father of the bride, because he pays for it all in our culture. Okay. But everybody else is celebrating. And during the celebration in first century, it was not a day-long celebration. It was a week-long celebration. Jesus says, the bridegroom, I am with you. And since I am with you, it's a time to celebrate. He's not dismissing fasting. He's saying, you don't know who I am and you don't know the mission I'm on. You don't know who I am and you have no idea the mission I'm on. You should be celebrating. But, verse 20, but the day is going to come when the bridegroom's taken, referring to his own future death 
burial, resurrection. The bridegroom's going to be taken. And in that day, you fast. In that day, you want to be reminded of the bridegroom. In that day, when you feel hunger, you remember the bridegroom. On that day, on that day, you fast, but now you celebrate. By the way, two things about that. As Mark is writing, recording the words of Jesus, remember the audience he's writing to, they've already seen the death of Jesus. When Mark passes it, when, when the gospel of Mark is written, it's after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so that audience looks back and says, now is the time of fasting. And the second thing is, that's for us too. It's a time for us to celebrate fasting and prayer go together in the scriptures, and we see that we fast for prayer, that we turn to the Savior. So Jesus is saying, now's the time to celebrate the time of fasting is coming. And he uses that wedding imagery to teach them a significant truth. The new will replace the old. The new will replace the old. And he uses two parables, the parable of the patch and the parable of the wineskins. And he uses that to teach, and it's an unexpected teaching, that the new is going to replace the old. Well, what exactly is Jesus doing there? He uses the wedding imagery. He gives two succinct parables, one verse only, to make the same point. His point is, I'm not coming as an addition, as an attachment, as an appendage to traditional Judaism. I'm not coming to reform Judaism. I'm coming with something new to change it. And so he says, you don't sew a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Every, when I was a kid, we, we used to patch our jeans, and now you just wear holes in them. You buy them that way. You don't patch them up. That's a whole different story. But anyway, you don't put, you don't put a new patch on an old garment because it pulls away. And then he uses an analogy also they would all be familiar with. In that day and age, the way you stored wine is you'd get an, you'd get an animal skin. You'd fold it or mold it into sew it together so it would be like a pouch. You'd put that in after time, after that uh, pouch had been used a few times, you wouldn't put new wine in it because it would be brittle and also be fully expanded. It wouldn't be elastic anymore. And so you don't put new wine into an old wine skin because you'll lose the wine, you'll lose the skin, it'll burst. What did Jesus say? He's saying, I'm coming not to reform your traditions. I'm coming not, not, to, not, not to be an attachment to what you're doing. I'm coming not to be an appendage to what you're saying. I, I'm coming not to, to, to uh, because of your traditional Judaism. Remember, they added all these things to the true law. He's saying, I'm not any part of that. I'm coming as the bridegroom. I'm coming with something new. It's interesting, in verse 21, he uses one word for new. In 22, it's a different word he uses for new. In 20, he uses, or 21, he says, I, I'm bringing something new, or he talks about something new. It's a word that refers to new in time. And then the word kainos in the next one is new in time. And he's saying, I want you to know I'm bringing something new in time, new in kind. What is he bringing that's new in kind and new in time? He's introducing grace to them. He's saying, hey, we're not going to keep these traditions. In fact, he would turn to the disciples or, or those following him one day in Matthew chapter 10 and he says come unto me all you are weak and heavy laden heavy laden with all these traditions all this legalism all this law and I will give you Shabbat literally I'll give you rest interesting you see they wanted to legislate everything they want to know for sure this is right this is wrong this is black this is white we want to be rule keepers not God seekers And Jesus came and said, no, that's not the way it's going to be. I'm going to keep the intent of the law, but not all these interpretations and traditions of the law. And they had thousands of them. Jesus is saying change is coming. It's out with the old and with the new. I came to fulfill the law, Matthew chapter 5. And I'm bringing, I'm the Messiah. I'm the bridegroom. 
I'm the son of man, he'll say in 228. Change is coming. Change is coming. Now, a lot of people don't like change, especially in churches. I found out over 32 years in a pastorate, a lot of people don't like change, especially in churches. We don't like change. Mark Twain said, the only person that likes change is a wet baby. <laughs> Pretty close to truth. But change comes. And uh, that's what Jesus is saying. There is a change that is coming. I thought, I like change. We change houses after 26 years in the same house. It blew my circuits. I mean, I like order. I like things to be in a place. I, I, and and then, then, then I've got things in places I didn't know where to put. And it just messed up my whole system. It was a problem. I'm sick, I know. But, but here's the reality. A lot of us don't like change, and we struggle when change comes about. I'm not talking about change that is sinful or wrong. I'm just talking about when times change and things change. We struggle. How many of you uh, updated or changed your iPhone or iPad this past couple of weeks? Let me see your hands. How's that change going for you? Yeah, somebody sent me this clip about change. It's, it's, it's a kid who uses his mom and dad's iPad, and they upgrade it. Watch this video. This is how a lot of us deal with change. Yes, it is. What's different? Everything. Well, you're just going to have to get used to it. I've had that person in my office more than once over the years. I'm going to tell you that. I don't want to change. I don't want to see change. I want to keep it like it is always. And Jesus says, change is coming. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I trump it all. He's the Savior. And so change is hard. And the Pharisees had two problems. They had a theological problem and a personal problem. The theological problem is they believed they were right. They believed Jesus was wrong and they're defending Judaism. I mean, that, that, that's the way it is. It's a tradition. And so their traditions are right. It helped them order everything. And secondly, they had a personal problem. If Jesus is right and they're wrong, then they lose their status, their significance, and their standing. And so it's a power struggle. It's a theological battle. As I read this, I thought, what are the old wineskins of the church today? I mean, when we read this, we've got to ask applicationally, so what, what, what are the old wineskins for us? What are the traditions that we hang on to and won't let go? I mean, what are those? And, and don't get confused here. I'm not talking about changes that are clearly violations of the Scriptures and wrong and sinful. For instance, same-sex marriage, it's sinful, it's wrong, period. Scriptures talk about it. And so that's wrong. Uh, health and wealth theology, I, I'm going to tell you, prosperity theology, it's from the pit of hell. Some of you believe in that stuff. Church decides we've got people buy and believe that stuff. I'm going to tell you, it's sinful and it's wrong, and the guys that purport that stuff are sinful and wrong, period. But when you look at a culture and say, if you don't have sin and you have enough faith, you're going to be healthy. You don't want to tell those guys, I get bad news for you, dude. One day, guess what? You're going to die. You're going to die. And so that, that's just bad theology. It's, it's wrong. I call it sinful. It's wrong. It's not true. Healing is in heaven. Healing is in here. Now, does God heal here? Sure he does. Believe me, I, I, I'm asking for that. But I'm going to tell you, every one of it, you're going to die. How's that for good news on a Sunday morning at TBC? 
It's terrible theology when they say, in fact, it's wrong in sinful theology, when they say, if you have faith and if you believe and if you give, it'll be given to you and you'll be wealthy. Come with me to the Ukraine and meet some of the most godly people I've ever met who make $1,000 a month and live on it, who will never be wealthy by this world's standards. It's sinful and it's wrong. And you know the sad thing? Those guys have the airways today, and that's what's being brought around the world, and they label that as American Christianity. It's terrible. So we're not talking about sinful things. We're talking about traditions, things that we want to make black and white that should still be gray or that are there, traditions that we make into laws like style of worship. There's a good one. That's where most battles have been fought in the church over the last generation. Which is right, which is wrong. Hymns versus chorus. Which is right and which is wrong. Neither. I mean, it's not either. Uh, dress codes. I mean, there are some churches, ladies, you couldn't wear makeup if you went to. How would you like that? No makeup. I mean, Bev told me I can't use my example of the born and paint anymore, so I'm not going to bring that up. <laughs> but I mean... I mean, I, I mean, there are churches with more rules. Here's a good one, use of alcohol. You go to some churches, it doesn't matter. You go to the churches, if you have a drink, you're, you're headed to hell. Really. Jesus made the finest wine. Had to be a good Cab Merlot blend, I'm convinced. <laughs> uh, here's a good one. You, you have to be a church planning church to be a church in our day and age. Really. We want to be missional. But if we don't plant more churches in temple, we're not really a church. I mean, that's what some of this day is talking about. You have to have communion daily, weekly, monthly. Take your pick. It's not right or wrong. It's a tradition. Altar calls. There's a good one. I, I got a communication to me recently and said, uh, nobody can get saved at Temple Bible Church because they never have altar calls. People get saved by altar calls. I thought Jesus saved people. I'm confused on that one. By the way, we do altar calls. Every summer, this summer, we had an altar call at the end of every service, intentionally. It was evangelistic in nature. We thought it was proper. A lot of Sundays you can come pray in the back with Bev and I or with elders. Sometimes we do, sometimes I don't want people to think that they are saved because they've walked down an aisle, because you're not. I don't want people to think they're saved because they've been baptized, because you're not. I don't want people to get saved because they tithe. Could No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> you're not. Jesus saves. You call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. And so what we find is we take these traditions and elevate them to law. We want everything to be black and white. And, and then we end up in just a mess. Jesus says, I'm not coming to reform your religion. I'm here to end it and replace it with myself. I am the bridegroom. And so he does the right thing on the wrong day. What am I talking about? Well, if you look at Mark chapter 2 in verse 23, he says, came about, he's passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to pick heads of grain. And the Pharisees confronted him in verse 24, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, that's wrong, because Deuteronomy says they could, but one of their traditions was you couldn't pluck, you couldn't reap on the Sabbath. And then you drop down to verse 2 of chapter 3, they were watching him to see if he would heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. These are called the Sabbath controversies because the Pharisees are looking at him and said, he does things on the Sabbath he should not do. Now, where do they get that? Well, in the Old Testament, there were 10 commandments, as you know, in Exodus chapter 20, one of those 10 commandments was this one right here. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. The word Sabbath means, is the Hebrew word Shabbat. It means to cease or to rest. 
And so you read that, and it says, remember Shabbat, cease to rest, by, and keep that day holy. And Jewish leaders wanted to find what you could or could not do in the Sabbath. They wanted black and white. They wanted to be rule keepers instead of God seekers. They wanted to legislate everything. And so they came up with a, with a number of laws by which they could determine whether or not they were keeping the Sabbath holy. Now, there are two things that set the nation of Israel apart from other nations, the Sabbath observance and circumcision. And we, we've got a difficult time understanding the significance of those events, but in Judaism, they were the most significant things to those people that were God-ordained ordinances that set the Jewish people apart from other nations. So the Pharisees say, remember, they read the Ten Commandments, and they see this, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. In fact, it goes on. It's the longest of the commandments. There's actually some amplification of it, and this is to be true for your servants and for your animals, etc. And the idea was it's a day to rest. God is the one who rested on the seventh day, and we should have a day of rest as well, where they wanted to find what that means. The problem is when you read that verse, it doesn't define it all, does it? I mean, remember. What's it mean to remember something? Well, when he says remember the Sabbath, it's not just called to mind. It's just not, you know, uh, call it to your mind, but it's called to your mind with the purpose of responding. Let me give you an illustration. Let me talk to the men. Guys, your anniversary's coming up. And if I tell you, remember your anniversary, what does that mean? Does that mean in the morning you pop your wife in the rib and say, good morning, wife, it's our anniversary, I remembered it, and stop there? How many of you ladies are in favor of that one? When I say, guys, your anniversary's coming up, you'd be a wise man if you remembered it. What I mean is to remember means to wake your wife up, not with a pop on her ribs, but to gently kiss her on her cheek and say, honey, it's our anniversary. I am so happily married to you. I'm in wedded bliss. And tonight we'll go wherever you want to eat dinner, see whatever movie you want to see, because you put up with me for all these years. Guys, you should be taking notes. And ladies, you should be saying amen. Right, ladies? I mean, is it enough for him just to say, I remembered? By the way, the best way to remember your anniversary, guys, is how? Forget it once. You'll remember it every time. (laughs) He says, remember the Sabbath. Remembering the Sabbath means calling it to mind and doing something about it. He's saying, "You you just don't bring it to your mind, but you respond with a purpose. The purpose was to seize or or rest on this day so you can be in the presence of God. By the way, the Sabbath began at sunset on Friday and ended at sunset on Saturday. When I was a kid in the little church I grew up in, the the deacon would do the pastoral prayer, different deacons every Sunday, and almost without exception, they would say, Lord, thank you for letting us be here this Sabbath day. And so I grew up thinking the Sabbath day was Sunday. How many of you grew up with that same understanding? Let me see your hands. There you go. The Sabbath day is sunset Friday, sunset Saturday, begin with the three blasts of the trump, and then it ended at sunset, and it was a time to cease of the, the normal things of life. It was not a day of inactivity. The priests worked harder than anybody else. The problem is they wanted to legislate it. That's not enough. So what do you do? Well, in the Old Testament, there were 613 total mosaic laws. I haven't counted them, but scholars tell me that. So 613 laws. By the time of Christ, as I told you, they've done all these additions, all these interpretations, all these traditions. So you know how many things, how many things there were? There were 1,521 laws just about the Sabbath. Just about the Sabbath. 
So you go from 613 laws to 1,521 laws specifically regarding the Sabbath. And I, I've shared this with you before. I mean, you, you can read and it's right there. Basically, there were 39 works of the law is what, how they categorized them. And these were called father works and under that were descendant works. And so one of the father works, one of the main works is you couldn't plow on the Sabbath. So it says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Well, to remember it means you couldn't plow. If you're going to cease from inactivity or a growing culture, you couldn't plow. Well, what does that mean? Well, they put together more laws on top of that. And so you couldn't plow on the Sabbath. So part of what they had added to it was this. You could not draw a chair along the ground. Now, what kind, what kind of floors did they have in that day and age? Dirt floors. You could, not draw, you could not draw a chair along the ground because you would make a rut, and making a rut was plowing. <laughs> Honey, don't pull the chair out. It's Sabbath. I mean, that's what they're saying. Also, you could spit on the ground, but you couldn't rub the spit because that would be plowing. So you can go, I'm not going to do it here, actually. But <laughs> I, I could do it here because there's no dirt here, actually. It's wood. That's why Jesus says, come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. They've got all this stuff. And the Sabbath had become a day of burden, not a day of blessing. I had another law. You couldn't reap on the Sabbath. In a grain culture, that makes sense. You couldn't pluck grain. You couldn't pluck years of corn. And so uh, what, what did that mean? Well, they had all kinds of things under that. That was one of the 39 father laws. Under that, one of the things they said is, since you can't reap, a woman could not look into a mirror on the Sabbath day because she might be tempted to pluck a gray hair, and plucking a gray hair would be reaping. Wow. Doesn't say anything about ear hairs or nose hairs, so the guys are safe. Do you understand what's happening? you understand? This, this had become, if you don't do this, 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 and this, and if you do this, this, and this, then you're right with God. And so what does Jesus do? He plucks grain. Deuteronomy says it was okay. This, the, the, the Pharisees said it's not okay. I mean, some of us get so legalistic. The essence of legalism is trusting in religious activity rather than trusting God, putting our confidence in a practice rather than a person. Without fail, this will make us love the practice more than the person. That's the problem. So he feeds hungry men, then he heals a broken man. By the way, when he compares himself to David, before I move on, you know what Jesus is saying? I mean, he compares himself today. When David did this in 1 Samuel chapter 21, he was, the, he was the appointed king, but not yet the anointed king. Saul was still king. And so what Jesus is saying is, I want you to know, I, I, am, the, I am the appointed king, and I am also the anointed king now. And so he says in verse 27, the Sabbath was not made for man, man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man, and that's Messianic talk all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man... The, the, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I trump everything. I trump it, even the Sabbath. Even the Sabbath. I came to fulfill this. You've got the bridegroom with you. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. And, and then he heals a man with a, bro, with a, with a, a broken man with a withered hand. They tried to accuse him. Verse 3, he said, the man with the withered hand, rise up, come forward. And then with impeccable logic, he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or kill a life? Well, how are they going to answer that? Look at the end of verse 4, chapter 3. They kept silent. Jesus looked around with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and he healed the man. I love what Tim Keller says about that passage. The hearts of the Pharisees 
were more withered than the hand of a man. You see, their traditions being black and white, making sure that they were rule keepers rather than God seekers had trumped comfort and care and love and compassion. So they kept the rules. Hey, they knew the scriptures better than anybody. But they had lost what was significant. And the result is their hearts were more withered than the man with the paralyzed hand. So they conspired to kill Jesus with the Herodians, by the way. Herodians, Herod, those were the guys that were followers of the king, and the Pharisees were the opposite. It's amazing how a common enemy can make strange bedfellows out of anybody. And they want to kill the Savior. Care and compassion trump law and legalism. What am I saying? Jesus comes as the bridegroom. He comes as a Lord of the Sabbath. He comes as a one who says we need to do good, save a life, not kill it. So I ask you three questions in closing. Question number one, what traditions have you elevated to law? And you need to repent of your judgment of others for doing or not doing. What traditions, what things have you legalized made black and white, and you sit around and judge other people because of it. What are those? You know, one of the things I find in our day and age, it's easy to pontificate on the sins of our culture and the sins of our society and even the sins of others rather than confronting our own personal sin. I can't tell how many times I've heard in the last few years, me in America, we're going to hell in a handbasket. Our culture, our society. Well, first of all, read the end of the book. It's going to get worse. But it's much easier to pontificate on the sins of others and the sins of society and the sins of culture than to hold the mirror up and say, what about me? What about me? And I'm going to tell you, I've got a judgmental heart. I study this passage, read this passage, and I'm guilty. I'm either maybe the most guilty person in here at times. Because we look and we judge. And we listen and we judge. And we're wrong. And I'm wrong. Second question. Jesus demonstrates throughout his ministry care and compassion for others. What about us? Some of you have lived in the same house for five years, ten years, fifteen years. You don't even know your next-door neighbor. No idea who they are. You've been in the same apartment for three years, five years, ten years. You have no idea who lives next door to you. You've been working the same job. And you could care less about the people that work around you. Is that the care and compassion of Jesus? Are you known for what you're against or who you're for? See, these guys were known for what they were against not who they were for. And shame on us when we begin to elevate tradition and rule-keeping over God-seeking and love and compassion and care. And thirdly, do you know him as your Savior? The Lord of the Sabbath, the bridegroom, the one who comes to give life. Because that's where it begins.
You can't earn his favor. You can't keep the traditions, as Tevi said. You heard what Tevi said? It keeps us in balance. We know how to dress. We know how to work. We know what to wear. It's a tradition. Our life stays in balance, and we find favor with God. No, you don't. No, you don't. Tony Campolo, I don't agree with all his theology. He's uh, not a guy I would agree with in all his theology, but he's an interesting man. I've read a lot of his stuff. I've heard him speak other places. And he tells a story about preaching at a pastor's conference in Honolulu, Hawaii. He said, I was a keynote speaker, and I couldn't sleep the night before. And so it's 3.30 in the morning. I went downstairs to a little diner, and there was a fat guy behind the counter, and I asked him to get a cup of coffee and donut, and he was kind of gruff, but he gave me the coffee and donut. And uh, actually, it was about 3 o'clock, and he said, 3.30, the doors open, about 8 or 9, provocatively dressed, boisterous prostitutes walked in. And uh, he said, I wanted to make my getaway, but I couldn't get out because they were blocking the door. So I just stood there for a minute. And then two came in after the others and said, uh, one said to the other, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39 years old. And a friend said in nasty tone, so what do you want from me, a birthday party or a cake? She said, come on, why do you have to be so mean to me? I don't want anything from you. I've never had a party in my life. Campolo said, I overheard the whole congregation, the whole conversation. And he said, I stayed there till they all left. And I went to the fat guy behind the counter. It's his words, not mine, by the way. And he said, I've got an idea. He said, do these ladies come in here often every night? The one whose birthday is tomorrow, does she? She comes every night. She's usually one of the last ones. I'd like to throw a birthday party for her tomorrow night. You want what? Throw a birthday party for her. If I bring the cakes, will you serve the coffee? You want a birthday party for her. That's a great idea. I bet Agnes has never had a birthday party in her life. Campolo says, I went and ordered two birthday cakes. I went down about 3 o'clock the next morning. And he said, uh, word had gotten out on the streets that there was a birthday party for one of the women. Over 30 women came that night to the diner. had been working the streets. About 3.30, Agnes came in with her friend. Friend knew to bring her. She had gotten word about the surprise birthday party. I had cued everybody. When Agnes walked in, everybody screamed, Happy birthday, Agnes! And I watched as she began to sob. She fell on her knees. They buckled right under her. And I looked at about 20 or 30 prostitutes all crying, flabbergasted. She said, Nobody's ever given me a birthday party. He said, I was the informal master of ceremonies because I was the only man in the whole place and nobody knew who I was but I brought the birthday cakes. So I had no idea what they expected. And I didn't know what to do, so I broke the silence by saying, let's pray. Let's pray. He said, I looked back on it, it had to be a strange event. Leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in Honolulu. But I prayed for Agnes, I prayed for each of them, I prayed for their salvation, I prayed lives would be changed and God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry, the fat guy behind the counter, leaned over. And he said, hey, man, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of preacher are you anyway? What church do you belong to? He said, I said in front of all the girls, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) He said about a half a dozen of those ladies said, how can we join? How can we join? That's what Jesus did. I, I came to touch a leper to invite Levi, a tax collector, to join me. 
prostitutes to see grace. I I didn't come to keep your rules. I I didn't come to reform your traditions. I'm bringing new wine, and we're going to put it in new wineskins. And we're going to celebrate because the bridegroom has come. And we're going to have salvation in me alone. Do you know that Savior? Are your care and compassion like that Savior? If you're judgmental of others and you lay the trump card of your traditions on them, it's time to repent. Father, that's our desire. It's our desire. More than anything else, it's to be God seekers, not rule keepers. It's too easy, Father. Too easy to want to follow things rather than follow you. To be like the Pharisees and look judgmentally at other people because of our religion. Rather than to be righteous before you because of the saving grace of Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know if Jesus is your Savior, if you've ever accepted him for the forgiveness of your sins, quit trying to keep rules. Trust him and him alone. And if you're that judgmental rule keeper out there, then would you confess that sin? Guilty, guilty, guilty. Father, I confess before my brothers and sisters, that's me at times. And so I pray. I pray for grace upon grace upon grace. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. You're dismissed.